1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today's episode is also a video episode that you can find on the YouTube Mark's Daily Apple channel. Of course, everything is in the show notes at blog.primalblueprint.com. Today we have Logan Yuri. This is going to be a great conversation because her book title is amazing. It's called How to Not Die Alone, The Surprising Science That Will Help You Find Love. She is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach and the author of this book we're going to discuss today. She also is the director of relationship science at the dating app hinge. So that should be very interesting. So she leads a research team really dedicated to help people finding love. And this book is really, really great. It poses a lot of really interesting questions to ask yourself and we're going to get into it today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. So this is, uh, let's jump right into it. I mean, your, book, your book's really amazing. It's so in-depth. I, I don't think we'll be able to cover all of it because it's so juicy. Um, but let's start off with your opinion as to why dating is harder than ever before.
2: Yes. So I decided to start the book off with that chapter because I felt like when I was working as a dating coach, people were really struggling and they were being so hard on themselves. They were saying, everyone else seems to have found love and what's wrong with me? And I wrote this chapter to really help people understand and empathize with why dating is so hard right now. And so some of the key reasons are things like we lack relationship role models. And so divorce rates peaked in the 1980s, but since then, Um, the divorce rate has also been very high. And so many of us are what Esther Perel calls the children of the divorced and disillusioned. So many of us did not have parents that were married or that had a healthy relationship. And so we just don't know what conflict looks like, how to make up from conflict, how to express your needs, how to compromise. And so a lot of us just lack those relationship role models. Another thing that's going on. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, no, continue. Another thing that has happened is that we put so much pressure on ourselves to find the right person and so in the past we used to have these communities and we would go to different people for different things but what's happened over the last few decades is that we've thought that we should go to one person for everything right our partner should be our co-parent our great sexual partner, um, the person who we make hard decisions with. And we put so much pressure on this relationship to be everything for us that it often leads to really high expectations that we can't meet. And then there's a few more reasons. For example, um, there's just so much choice. There's this idea of the paradox of choice, Right. Um, people think that they want choice and they want options. But what often happens is that the more options you have, the more you doubt yourself, it can actually either make you feel depressed or question your decision, or maybe even make no decision at all.
1: Yeah. So, so interesting. uh, Tell us a little bit. I thought this was an interesting, uh, this is true, very like primal related, but we have this, we, we want certainty right we yearn Absolutely. for certainty and this is like an unknown foray as you're learning to meet someone and getting to know someone and so we might make snap judgments and you know you go through that we'll, and we'll talk briefly about your the types that you are the romanticizer <laughs> the maximizer the hesitator um and this is really interesting too and i think on the other side of this yearn for consistency is something i am sorry the yearn for certainty is also like uh this Sometimes we have this false sense of hope for consistency or certainty when we're in a relationship and things aren't going in the right way, or this person we're starting to realize is not for us some of the hard times to detaching there are really we're we're in this false sense of hope for consistency. We, we want this. So we go back to, Oh, but they were not like this, but this is Mm -hmm. how it was in the beginning. Oh, Oh, you want to hold on to the one time a week. They're nice, but now they're a jerk. And we're, it's like this false sense of hope for consistency is usually what I see in people that know they're in something they need to get out of, but they're still, you know, attached. But that kind of, I see is on the other side of like, again, this yearn for us. We want certainty. Talk to us about this and why this is coming up as an issue.
2: Oh yeah. That's absolutely a big theme with what I see in dating. And so people say, I don't want to walk down the aisle until I'm a hundred percent certain about somebody or the hesitator, which we'll get into. They say, I'm not ready to date. I need to be a hundred percent certain that I'm lovable and that I can put my best foot forward. And so people have this false notion that there ever is a sense of being a hundred percent ready or a hundred percent certain. And so it really comes from a place of anxiety. People are just not willing to take risks because they want to feel like they are completely ready. But so much of what we know is that you have to take a leap of faith, right? You find someone great, you commit to them and you make it work as opposed to finding somebody who's a hundred percent perfect. And then the relationship will be easy. And so this is something that I consistently hear. People want to do all the research. They want to turn over every stone. They want to see what else is out there. But when it comes to dating and to many things in life, there's no such thing as a hundred percent certainty. And so at a certain point you have to say, I I know myself. I have high standards. I've met those standards and I'm going to commit to someone and make it work as opposed to always wondering what else is out there.
1: You know, even on that note, this is might seem far off tangent, mm-hmm. but as far as certainty goes, even you, let's say you find the love of your life, mm-hmm. you get married, you have 3 kids. This happened to a friend of mine. Then your husband dies 10 years in. Nothing is certain, right? Even once you get that certainty of, oh, we're together, we're married, the contract whatever, things are still uncertain. You got to just enjoy it for now and you have to take the leap. We'll talk a little bit more, you know, about, again, that perfectionism. They're like, well, I for sure we want to be what we want to attract to some degree if you you know don't want to date a smoker don't be one might <laughs> be that might be a, might be a, a best uh, approach to that but you know on the other side of it too we're waiting it's like oh i'll finally be happy when i or mm-hmm. I, I can if i just lose the weight if i someone is out there who will love you for you now and so we
2: then stretch things out yeah absolutely and just on a personal note i don't know if i shared this in our communication beforehand but Uh, last year at the beginning of the pandemic, my then fiance, now husband was actually diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. And so we have just been having the craziest last 12 months. You know, the pandemic is going on and we're dealing with really challenging chemotherapy and he had a below the knee amputation. And, you know, I'm really living exactly what you talked about, which is this idea of you have a plan and that's just not what happens. And there's this amazing book called um, Far From the Tree about raising different types of children. It's by Andrew Solomon. And he talks about the fact that you are on a plane to uh, France and all of a sudden the pilot says, we're not going to France, we're going to Holland and he says welcome to Holland and right that's what life is all about you think you're headed in one direction and then this other thing happens and you just can't plan for it and then you know you make the best of Holland and so i'm really living that right now and it's been so interesting my husband is he before he was a very rigid person and he's vegan and he worked out every day and he really liked to control things and just to see him become more flexible and to just kind of give into the fact that he did everything he could to not get cancer and he still got cancer. And so, you know, this is kind of a more personal note, but just the idea that I think people who are trying to control everything and who think if I do X, then Y will happen. Well, you don't really control all those things. And if you can actually just take a leap of faith and understand that, do your best, put yourself out there and things will work out. I think that that could actually be very empowering to people because so many of us think I'm not lovable yet, right? I'll be lovable when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be lovable when I get this job promotion, but you're lovable right now. You just actually have to put yourself out there and, and show people who you are. Let's talk about these, these types that we have,
1: the romanticizing. Yeah. Will you go through each one? Let's talk sure. about the romanticizer first.
2: Yeah. Actually, this is one of my favorite parts of the book and it's because I've worked with so many different types of clients, but I noticed that many of them suffered from these dating blind spots, these patterns of behaviors, these attitudes that held them back from finding love, but importantly, that they couldn't identify on their own. And so what I found is that these dating blind spots are all about unrealistic expectations. And so the first one is the romanticizer. And that person has unrealistic expectations of relationships. And so this is the person who loves love and they believe in the happily ever after. And they think that there's a soulmate out there for them. And they say, I don't want to use the dating apps. That's not romantic. I want to meet in a more natural way. And so what happens to the romanticizer is that when they get into a relationship, and that relationship hits that inevitable rough spot, they think, oh, this can't be my soulmate because if this were my soulmate, then it would be effortless. And so they give up on potentially great relationships because they think that relationships, if they're right, will be easy. And that's not true. Or what about the romanticizer
1: again? If it's not perfect and there's an immediate spark at the beginning, it's like they write it off because it's not the envision of that It's not the manifestation of that visualization of
2: that like romanticized idea. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is one of my other favorite chapters of the book, F the Spark, which is all about this idea that people have this sense from Disney movies and rom-coms that you're going to meet the person and there's going to be the pang of instant chemistry and the whole room will stop and your heart is beating so quickly and you just know that this is the right person. And so a lot of people actually write off excellent potential partners because they don't feel that pang of initial excitement. And so one of the key themes in the book is this idea that the spark can grow over time. Some of the best people out there are people that are like onions that need to be peeled. And so if you're so focused on that immediate spark or on the meet cute where you're at the farmer's market and you both reach for the perfect tomato at the same time, You know that's just unrealistic. That's a Hallmark movie. That's a Hallmark movie. That's a Hallmark movie. movie. That's not your local farmers market. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and the other thing is, think about how long a relationship is. Think about if you get married when you're 30, and you know you live for 60 more years. How you met is .0001 percent of the relationship, and so you're absolutely right. Romanticizers are so focused on the how we met story, but who cares how you met? What matters is how you show up for each other every day and how you work through those hard moments. Right.
1: And also the, you know, allowing for getting to know someone to see if attraction builds, this has happened naturally. I'm sure to many people listening where you dated someone because you got to know them a bit and you're like, Oh, Hey, hold on. And you know, then you had a relationship with them and they were someone that you would never look twice on the street. At or maybe didn't look yeah. twice at before, but you got to know them a bit, and so yeah, you know, I think uh, I, I think I have been in the past more of a romanticizer, mm-hmm. um, and 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 had to get sort of like real about that, and real because I've had those experiences where I'm like, well, hold on a minute, I've met people that there was an initial, oh my gosh, I want to jump your bones, but there was something about them I liked, and then as I got to know them over time as a friend, I
2: fell for them. So why wouldn't I use that same philosophy somewhere else as well? You know, in this dating process. That's exactly right. And so I am a living example of that because my husband and I knew each other for eight years before we started dating. We had met in college. Then I saw him on Tinder. I actually swiped left. I rejected him on Tinder. And then it took becoming good friends at work for a year before I was like, Hey, I don't have plans on Friday night. You should ask me out. And my husband is the, by the way, hold on. I want to highlight that. Yeah. That's awesome. That you Thank said you that.
1: You were just yeah. bold as shit. You were like, I don't yeah. care. I'm not going to wait for a guy to ask me. I'm just yeah. going to call it like I see it, there. which was yeah. probably the result of you guys having such you know good communication as
2: friends for the eight years. You were able to sort of just flippantly do that, but I love that you did that. Thank you. And it was also because I went to a dating coach and I talk about this in the book that I had met this guy at Burning Man and he wasn't interested in me, but I was chasing after him and I had this obsession with the chase. And if somebody doesn't like me, then they must be better than me and I should convince them to be with me. And I, I was so addicted to what I thought was chemistry, but what I now understand was anxiety. And so I worked with this dating coach and she helped me understand how do you want to feel in the presence of the person you're dating. And that guy that I was chasing, he made me feel insecure. He made me feel nervous. He made me feel undesirable. And when I thought about who made me feel the way that I wanted to feel, it was this guy at work that I was spending time with. And it, I mean, I'm not trying to overly make it into a rom-com, but it is that moment of the person who you call after a date to talk about your dates, that's the person you should be dating. Right, that's such a good point. let's go into the maximizer. Yes. So the maximizer is a very common type, probably the most common type that I encounter. And I bet a lot of your listeners are maximizers too. And so the maximizer has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so this is the person who says, I like my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? Or my boyfriend is great, but could he be 10% more ambitious? And so they're always thinking, what else is out there? How could I do better? They have one foot out the door looking for the next best thing. And so the thing about the maximizer is that they feel like there's one perfect person and they just have to research their way to that person and then everything will work out. But that's just not the case. The truth is so much of a good relationship is putting in the daily work, putting in the effort and making it a great relationship. And so great relationships are built. They're not discovered. And so for these maximizers, they need to understand that, yes, you can have high standards, but when you meet somebody who satisfies those standards, choose them, commit to them and make it work. Don't always wonder what else is out there.
1: Yeah. That's, you know, and that's a huge thing. And actually I think the entertainment industry breeds a little bit of it. Um, But in Los Angeles, uh, as far as other cities go, it is a very much, uh, well, it can, it can. Breed an opportunistic type of personality mm-hmm. because of you know people trying to vie for the limited jobs in an industry that's very limited to this one city, yeah, right? And I well. noticed that as in all the years I've been here, I'm like, huh, it seems like, and that's what I look in the opposite for when I'm looking at people, but there is this sort of like over your shoulder, mm-hmm. if the next best thing comes along, right? Or 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 like, oh, if I end up on set with a famous person and she wants to go out with me, I'm gonna ditch my girlfriend because I'm mm-hmm. up-leveling. Like, there's a little bit of that in this town again, I'm not saying you can't find people that aren't like that here. It's just that it's interesting because I don't really see that in a lot of other environments Mm -hmm. and places. You certainly don't see in small towns and stuff. You see what you're talking about, which is like, you meet someone, you have a spark and you're going to give it a shot. You're not going to like look over your shoulder every five seconds. So just kind of, I think that's sort of
2: an interesting thing I've noticed here. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And so one thing I talk about in the book is that maximizers are obsessed with this idea of the objective right decision, right? So they think there's one perfect Mm -hmm. thing out there. I need to do all my research. And once I do all my research, I'll find it. But the truth is, that it's much more how we feel about a decision than is it the exact perfect decision or not. And so if you find someone great and you commit to them and you say, this is the person I choose and I'm going to make it work, that's what makes you happy. It's not about saying I've dated a thousand women and this was the best woman of all of them. Because in the end, even in that scenario, you're still going to wonder, well, who was the woman who was a thousand and one, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so this is really something, uh, the opposite of a maximizer is called a satisficer. And so a satisficer is the person who has expectations, has standards, but when they meet them, they feel satisfied by them and they commit. And so I give this example in the book of somebody who's buying an espresso machine and one person goes to Wirecutter and they read a hundred reviews and they go to Amazon and they look at many, many, many different types of espresso machines and they buy one. But even when they buy it and it comes, when there's a few flaws with it, they regret their decision. Versus the person who says, oh, Nespresso is a good company. They go to the Nespresso store, they buy a Nespresso, they come home, and they enjoy it. And so who's who's better off, the person who did all the research but regrets their decision or the person who said Nespresso is good enough and then commits to it? And so it's so much more important to be happy than to be right. Let's talk about perfect being the enemy of great. Yeah. That's the exact idea, right? So the maximizer is so focused on this idea of, um, if only I turn over one more, one more leaf and if if only I see what else is out there, right? They're so focused on this 5% optimization and getting better that they never actually just allow themselves to commit and make something work. And so I think that that's something about the maximizer is that they're always wondering what else is out there. They're always looking at the grass is greener, but they don't understand that part of the beauty of our brain is that when we make a decision and we commit to it, our brains rationalize and make us feel better. And so it's this idea of if you buy a jacket that's final sale, you know that you own that jacket now, and you commit to liking the jacket. If you buy a jacket that you can return, maybe when you get home, you say, oh, it's a little shorter than I thought. I have something similar. And you're going back and forth in your head with the pros and cons. And in that process of wondering, did I make the right decision? You actually convince yourself that you don't like it. And so oftentimes the right answer is fewer choices, making a commitment, because in making that commitment, your brain will convince you that you made the right choice. But so many people never let themselves get to that point of making a commitment.
1: So well said. Um, can you go through, and you know there's some great books on attachment. You mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of them in your book as well. But can you talk about uh, the, the various attachment styles? Can we just kind of go through them? I think that'll shed a lot of light. For people on what their style might be and how this fixes into dating.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting when I was writing my book and I wanted to include this chapter on attachment theory, my publisher was like, oh, there's a bunch of good books out there. People can read those books. Why do you need to include it? And I was like, this is one of the single most important things that daters need to know about in order to find love. And this has been so profoundly important to me and to other people I've worked with that I need to include it. And so Attachment theory is one of the best research elements of relationship science, and it's based in this idea that when we're children, we form attachments to our primary caregiver, and there's different ways that this plays out. And so some people are anxiously attached. And those are people who have a fear of abandonment. They think that somebody's always going to pull away from them. And so they're constantly reaching out. They're saying, did you land? Why haven't you texted me? What's going on? And they can actually get into this sort of red zone where they protest and they, you know, text you 40 times and then turn off their phone. And the thing about somebody who's anxiously attached is they're always worried that they're going to be abandoned. And so they're reaching out to connect. And then the next one is somebody who's avoidant attached. And they're sort of the opposite. They're afraid that they're going to be smothered. They're afraid that when they date somebody, that person's going to take away all of their independence. And so this is the type of person who says, I just don't have time to date. I need more time to myself. You know, you're smothering me. And what happens with these people is that when they get into relationships, they often pull away and they don't want to commit. And then the third type is somebody who is securely attached. And so they're sort of the best of both worlds. These are people who are comfortable with intimacy, but they're also comfortable with independence. And so what happens is that around 50% of the population is securely attached, which is great. These people are the relationship heroes, but unfortunately- these people get into relationships and don't get out of them. And so what you have in the dating pool and on the dating apps is these anxiously attached people dating this avoidant attached person, and they keep reinforcing each other's patterns. The anxiously attached person says, you're going to abandon me. And the avoidant attached person says, you're going to smother me. And so they get into these loops where they are just reinforcing each other's worst habits. And that's what was happening to me, right? I was anxious attached. I was pursuing people who weren't interested. They were pulling away. And I was a addicted to the chase. And so what broke the pattern for me was finding my husband who is securely attached and who broke these bad habits and was comfortable with being close, but also gave me space. And so for anyone listening who recognizes themselves in that anxious, avoidant loop, you can break out of it. And one of the best ways to do that is by finding a securely attached partner.
1: Right. And that's what you're saying. Like, that's what we should be looking for is dating secure partners. Um, you know, the ones who text when they say they will, right? Who lets you know what's going on in their mind, yeah. as you say, who won't play games or even, or will even de escalate drama. These are the people. Yes, exactly. I yeah, were looking for. Um, prom
2: date versus life partner. Yes. Yeah, so the idea with the prom date versus the life partner is that. When you're in high school, when you're looking for the prom date, you know, what matters to you? This is the person who you want to dance the night away with, who will look good in pictures, maybe who you want to sleep with at the end of the night. And that's fine when you're 17. But one of the big issues that I've seen is that people never grow out of this. And they keep looking for that prom date. And so one story I tell in the book is a woman who was in her mid-30s, Who was single, who said she wanted to have a bunch of kids and, you know, give birth to them and this and that. But she was just pursuing guys that were not serious, guys that uh, were not employed, guys that did not take care of themselves, guys that were not reliable. And she just really was pursuing these prom dates. And so the work for her and for many people is to understand the difference that at a certain age, you have to pursue a different type of person. And so the the life partner is the person who will be with you long-term. And so one of the most important things is to understand what matters and what doesn't for a long-term relationship. And so some of the things that matter less than we think are things like looks, money, having the same personality, and having shared hobbies. And things that matter more than people tend to think are things like kindness, loyalty, the ability to make hard decisions together, having a growth mindset, and what has become perhaps the most important to me through my research is what side of you that person brings out, right? How how
1: are you feeling in yeah. that moment? And and you know, and you can tell Glenn, I'm sure you've had it too. You your relationships where sometimes you feel like your creativity is stifled, or maybe you're more of a rescuer, or like all your time spent on dealing with their stuff. And then there's other people that just like inspire you to be like the best and so great. Like that's kind of what you're looking for that that wonderful sense of inspiration. Um, And feeling again, I think one of the most important things to me is feeling so comfortable and not having to edit myself around who I'm with. That's such a great sign of comfortability, you know, that I could just be who I am without that edit button on. And that's such an important vibration to feel. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. I love the way you said that. Yeah. I mean, if you're censoring yourself because you think that somebody won't accept you, why are you doing that? Why not be with somebody who loves your whole flawed self and who you can be yourself around? And so One of the issues that I see people doing is they have these checklists, and they're so focused on, I want a guy with a graduate degree who's six feet tall and makes six figures, and they're so focused on this checklist and this resume. And then they find a guy like that, and they go out with them, and the person's not very nice to them, or the person makes them feel self-conscious or questions their art decisions or questions the food that they cooked. And they're so focused on, well, he's perfect on paper that they don't realize that that person doesn't make them feel good. So one of the things I really want people to focus on is throw out that checklist, stop worrying about the resume, and actually pay attention in the moment to how that person makes you feel. Because if you are in a relationship with them, that's the side of yourself that they're bringing out, and that's who you'll be around them.
1: Well, it's the same thing with, like, and I I talk about this with like confidence in my book, which is... You can't gauge confidence on someone's like job description or hobby or ability in a thing. You can be really confident in your ability in a thing that seems like then oh that person is confident but they could be the most insecure person on the inside, a total people pleaser, but they have this like very confident job that they're confident at. That's not the way to gauge it, right? You got to like look on the inside and the same goes with these checklists. And it's funny when I hear friends and people say that too. I'm like that's what's important. What are the qualities and characteristics of, of the person. And one of the blanket ones that I kind of came up with over the years that I realized was important to me is, and it, I think it should be for everyone, which is, I want to admire and like the way my person looks at the world whatever that is, right? That's going to be different for me than someone who has a different set of values and beliefs. They're going to want someone who has those values, right? Et cetera. And so that's how I look at it. Like, how do they treat people? You know, how do they look at things? How do they talk about things? How do they deal with conflict? What are the conversations when something comes up that's a fire they need to put out? How are they processing that and speaking about it? Those are the things that tell you the person's character, right? And I think as well, and I wonder what your thoughts on this. I mean, look, the online thing is so pervasive, but everybody is, a lot of people say who they are. That's great. A lot of times that's saying who they wish they would be Mm -hmm. just because someone says it, obviously don't buy it, but you need to get to know someone before that. I feel like this goes right into possibly something else we could jump into, which is not an interview, right? A date. You can go back and forth with all of the Um, factual notes, right? Where'd you grow up (laughs) here? But then it's nice. I mean, and I think this is where I'm good at this probably because I'm an interviewer and I have lots of different questions to ask, but asking them other things like that could just reveal more about them. So can you talk a little bit on this and and maybe give us a a few ideas of some interesting questions we could ask someone if we're on the phone or a Zoom date or in person that might lead it
2: out of the interview zone? Yes, exactly. And I think you're, you're really hitting the nail on the head with this theme, which is people have these checklists and people go on a date and they treat the date like a job interview and they say, okay, is this person good enough for me? What is their job? Can I triangulate what they make? Um, you know, do they satisfy all of these requirements that I've thought of? And they are not looking to connect. They are not looking to have an experience. They are not present. They're in what I call the evaluative mindset and they're there to judge. And really what leads to connection is when you have an experience together. And so the experiential mindset, being present and connecting with somebody, that's how you have a great date. And so in the book, I have this list of 10 ways to design better dates, 10 ways to get out of that interview mindset. And so the first thing is a pre-date ritual. And so this is the idea that the date doesn't just start when you show up to the cocktail bar or the coffee shop or the FaceTime date. The date starts hours before, and you have to shift yourself out of work mindset, warrior mode, get shit done, and actually get into the mode of, I'm here to connect. I'm here to be flirtatious. I'm here to really get to know someone. And so that might be taking a bath, lighting a candle, listening to your pump up playlist, but really you're getting yourself in the mode for connection. The next thing I would say is that so often we're focused on showing off and, uh, being interesting, but the research shows that it's much better to be interested than interesting. And so really what charms somebody is when you ask them great questions and you make them feel like you're really listening. And so it's not about telling the best story. It's about being the best listener when they tell a story. And similarly, oh sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, and I, you know, I know you've talked about this and heard about it, but
1: it's tough. It's happened to me several times. And again, I'm a good question answer. I've been on enough dates to know the boring ones. Let's get mm-hmm. out of the bullshit and let's just move on to some mm-hmm. interesting, like let's have a great and by the way, it has led to great conversations even with people that I didn't meet, but I had a great conversation with them. That. You know what I mean? Yeah and that that in and of itself was worth it. Um I I but in In asking people questions like about themselves, it's interesting because I've had several dates where no one asked a fucking question Mm -hmm. to me, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. once, you know, and I would just say to people out there, if you have a giving person in a date Mm -hmm. like that, who's asking, you notice that be aware, start to be Mm -hmm. more aware on dates about that. Um, And and that's always a little disappointing because you get off a phone call and you're like, wow, wow you didn't ask me one Mm -hmm. freaking thing about
2: myself. Yeah. My friend calls the ZQ zero questions. (laughs) It's one of her biggest pet peeves. And, you know, I think this is exactly the point that I'm trying to make, which yeah, it is fun to talk about yourself and it is fun to hear the sound of your own voice and tell stories, but that's not what makes somebody like you. What makes somebody likes you uh, like you is when you seem interested in them. And so for anyone listening who says, oh, well, she just kept asking questions. So I kept answering it. Yes. That's because she's being a good conversationalist, but it's your responsibility to ask questions back. And there's this part of the book, um, is, is this isn't my original concept, but I, I thought it was really interesting. It's the idea of shift versus support responses. And so let's say you say to me, I just got a golden doodle puppy. A shift response would be, I shift the attention back to me and I say, Oh, I've always wanted a golden doodle puppy. When I grew up, I had a Maltese puppy. This is why my family got that puppy and I'm shifting the attention back to me. A support response is that I ask you a follow up question. Oh, how long have you wanted a dog? How did you decide to have a golden doodle? How are you planning to do the training? And so, This is good advice for people at the workplace, with your friendships, with your family, with dates, is that yes, sometimes there's a tendency to hear something and say, here's how it relates to me. But what people really like and what leads to connection is when you ask them follow-up questions and you give them space to actually tell their story. Absolutely.
1: And I think this is interesting too, because as a relationship goes by, there's even more questions that need to be asked to define how you move forward. Right. And, um, this is what I love your topic about, um, before you tie the knot, mm-hmm. right. But before we get into that, let me and see if we can cover this real quick. I do love this way to look at the end of an interview uh, the end of a date, mm-hmm. the post date Yeah. You know, can, can we run through that? Or do you mind if I rattle
2: my off or? No. Yeah, I can. I'll say uh, one thing, which is that uh, there's two things. One is that people disproportionately remember the end of an experience. And this is some of my favorite research. It's from one of the fathers of behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman. And so he did this research that shows that people would rather have a colonoscopy that is slightly longer, but ends in a less painful way than one that's shorter, but ends in a more painful way. And that's because we disproportionately remember the peak moment and the end moment. It's called the peak end rule. And so one of the things to make a date really great is at the end of the date, end on a high note. And so that might mean going in for the kiss, giving somebody a meaningful compliment, ordering dessert, surprising them with a certain mural on a wall near the bar. But really thinking about how you end a date, that's a really critical part of making sure that you had a great experience with someone.
1: Absolutely. I just I love these questions to ask yourself, right? Like, what side of me did they bring out? how did my body feel? Right. You know, uh, sensing like, was I stiff? Was I relaxed? You asked, did I feel more energized or Mm de-energized than I did before the date? When you've had a great date, you're on fire afterwards. Your energy, it's almost like you can't go to bed. Your mind's going. It's, it's, it's definitely stimulating. Um, also, uh, asking yourself, is there something about them? I'm curious about, Mm -hmm. did they make me laugh? Did I feel heard? Did I feel attractive in their presence? Did I feel captivated, bored, or something in between? I just think those are a great list of questions to sort of, again, do like an exit interview with yourself, (laughs) you know, sort of after after the date. I really appreciate that. Um, Before you tie the knot, do this. You have a whole section on this, which I love. But you mentioned the statistics that couples who wait one to two years before getting engaged are 20% less likely to be divorced than people who only did it in the first year. Can you give us a little bit of that? And then and then I want to get into the before you tie the knot.
2: Yeah. So basically the bigger idea here is that when you fall in love with somebody, it's like your brain is on the drug of love. And there's some really interesting studies from Helen Fisher, who's a bio- biological anthropologist that talk about, uh, the brain on love. And so the brain on love is similar to a drug addict who's getting a hit. And so first, in the first three to four years of a relationship, you're actually on this extreme hormone and the drug of love and you are in this honeymoon period. But what we know is that that fades after three to four years, and then we move into the different stage of a relationship. And so what ends up happening is when people meet and they get married very quickly, they haven't transitioned into that second stage yet. And so when that honeymoon period and that love as a drug initially fades, it can be hard to keep the relationship alive. And so the general idea there is that, yes, in the beginning, you feel like there's an amazing connection and everything is perfect and they bring out the best side of you and you bring out the best side of them. But it's very possible that you're not being your full self yet, that you're sort of wearing a mask, that you're trying to be somebody that you're not. And so the general idea here is that it does take time to become yourself in a relationship and to get to know the other person. And so instead of rushing into things, and not having these hard conversations and assuming that, oh, well, I want to move back to Portland and I love this person, so he must want to move back to Portland. Or, well, I want to have kids and she and I are soulmates, so she must want to have kids too. It's critical to actually slow down and have these hard conversations and check in. And so that's really the whole idea of before you tie the knot, do this, is that we assume we're so in love, we must have the same ideas, but you actually need to sit down and say, are we on the same page about where we are and where we're headed? Because so many people get divorced because they assume things about their future and they never talk to their partners about them.
1: I, this whole section, I I mean, we wish we could, but this book is so great, but I love the questions that you ask. You have questions about the past, Mm -hmm. asking a few questions. I'll just give a sprinkle. Like, how do you think your childhood affects who you are today? Mm -hmm. What a great open-ended question to get to know someone really well. What comes out of their mouth on that one? Boy, that's going to say so much, right? So you have uh, questions about, you know, the past, the present, um, in the relationship and, and, and even the future, like you said, you know, how often do you want to see your family or what role does your religion play? Or, you know, these important conversations Mm -hmm. to have, I think, Uh, One of the most important conversations that someone had with me, which I was like, oh, I'm doing this every time before I even get involved fully with someone, which is someone asked me, we had newly dated, but Valentine's Day was like there, oof, loaded, right? All those things. And he was awesome. He said, hey, you know what? I want to ask you, how do you feel about like holidays and Valentine's Aww. days and things like that? How do you want to celebrate them? Or like, how do you feel about gifts? What are your, mm-hmm. wh- what is that for you? Like, let's just go through that. This is a really fascinating thing. It avoids so much conflict later on because I would die if someone took me out for Valentine's day dinner on Valentine's day. Not my right. thing. I don't like familiarity with strangers right. celebrating things that are like personal that that kills me. But then what am I gonna do? Be disappointed, I'm sad because I didn't tell the person how I need to be loved or what I like. And again, going into love languages, of course, fivelovelanguages.com, you can take the free test. These things are important because you find, like I was talking to someone once, they their birthday was like all hell, like it everything big party that was like the most important day of the year for them. Mm-hmm. This was like their holiday. I don't even give a shit about my birthday. Mm -hmm. So like if I were with this person, I might, I've got them a thought. No, this is a person if you're dating. Oh, you, but this is where you show up every year and you got to really do the thing for them because this is what they love. So these are just like simple things about what do you like? Like, how do I love you? How do you love me? What do you like? Some people are gift people. I'm not. And so if a guy kept giving me like material gifts, I, that wouldn't, feel love to me. It also would be like, ah, oh, you don't know me. And I think these are just these are These are the things that get people in yucky spaces that they don't need to be in if you just cleared it up from the beginning. And I loved that this guy brought up this conversation because we learned so much about each other in it.
2: Oh yeah. I think that's an amazing story. And one of the things that I often say to coaching clients is get curious. And so let's say you and somebody else are disagreeing, right? So I worked with this couple where um, first he was my matchmaking client. Then he met this woman. Then I was coaching both of them. Now I coach them as a couple and they were moving in together. And this guy is an extreme minimalist. And that's his philosophy is that, less is more. And that's part of being mindful. And he really, he really admires having fewer things. And when he and his girlfriend were moving in together, she wanted to keep every single thing that she had. And he saw this as a bad sign. He's like, why is she a hoarder? And why doesn't she understand this? And he was jumping to conclusions. And I said, get curious. And when he talked to her about it, he found out that her mom had actually been in a fire when she was a kid and had lost all of her things. And so for her, she had, Grown up in this environment where things could be lost at any time and you really hold on to your possessions, and your possessions are so precious. And so there was a much deeper story beneath the surface. Or if there's a fire, you better have so little that you could pack it oh, yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, he actually had this really deep, lovely conversation with her because instead of judging her for what he thought was her hoarding tendencies, he learned, Oh, there's a deeper story about your family background and your, your, your story of origin and all of this stuff. And And so in many of these situations, instead of saying, well, I love gifts, this person must love gifts, I'll give them gifts, or why isn't this person giving me words of affirmation? That's what I like. And so it's really understanding that, yes, you should know who you are and you should know how to ask for what you want, but you should also give space for the other person to tell you what their preferences are.
1: I would love you, and I know you probably have a million stories from all the people that you've worked at, but, you know, can you share a few stories that come to mind of some 180s people that either felt that they were unlovable or there was no way they were going to find anyone to, you know, I'm sure you have a couple that stand out. I would love to hear some sort of that can maybe, you know, give us hope and inspiration as well.
2: Yeah. And so in the chapter on attachment theory, I talked about this woman I knew who really had this anxious avoidant loop where if she met a guy and he ignored her then she really liked him and she thought well he's too good for me so he must be the person that I want to pursue he's not interested in me and then when she would date nice guys that showed affection for her she would say they're too boring they're coming on too strong they're they're pathetic and so the work that I did with her and the work I've done with a lot of people is helping people understand that it's great to be with somebody secure it's not that they're boring it's that they're reliable they say That what they do, what they say, and you're not always playing games. And so, one of the big 180s is people who are able to correctly identify this isn't chemistry or butterflies, this is anxiety. And so, there's a lot of 180s that I've seen around that. Another one is the hesitator. And so we didn't get into this yet, but the hesitator is the type of person who has unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so they always think, I'll be lovable when I do this. I'll be ready to date when. And so they're so focused on becoming perfect and they believe in this idea that, you know, love is conditional and they're just not lovable yet, that they don't actually get out there. And so working with hesitators, and even since my books come out, I've gotten a lot of nice emails about people who say, you're right, I am making excuses. And so the advice for the hesitator is don't wait, date. And so for these people, get out there, work on your dating skills, figure out the kind of person you want to be with, because there's no such thing as being 100% ready or 100% perfect. At some point, you just have to get out there and actually uh, give something a shot.
1: The, the, uh, gosh, your book is really, it's so packed full of so many things. Uh, there's no shortage here of information, which is great. Sometimes you read a book and you're like, read it in three seconds. And you're like, <laughs> ah, okay. I could mean, have been could an have re- article. Yeah. yeah, could have been an article. <laughs> could have been a pamphlet. Um, I love Everything that you do, you, you, you inspire us to ask certain questions, give us ideas. You break all this down where we can really kind of see where we're at with this. What are some things that uh, maybe we haven't discussed so far that you'd love to sort of open up or share in our last, you know, uh, you know, minutes here of the podcast? What are some other things we might need to consider that I didn't bring up? Sure.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite pieces of original research I've done is around breakups. And so I have this framework called hitchers and ditchers. And so ditchers are people who stay in relationships for too short. These are the kind of people who jump from three-month relationship to three-month relationship, And they confuse falling in love with being in love. And so what happens? Those are the the, like love bombers too, right? Like a hundred percent. Yeah. The love bombers. Oh no. Yeah, exactly. So they love the initial chemistry. They love the honeymoon period. But when things eventually fade into something that's less intense, they say, Oh, this must not be my person. And so they say on to the next one. And they don't understand that falling in love is not a perpetual state eventually you transition into being in love. And so what the ditchers are doing wrong is they don't understand that, yes, they're getting their reps in, they're getting in dates one through 10, and they're getting in the first three to six months, but they don't know what it's like to be in a relationship for a year or two years or 10 years. And so if you're a ditcher who wants to find a long-term relationship, you have to eventually understand that falling in love and being in love are different. And you have to find somebody and commit to them and make it work. And it's not always going to be the honeymoon period. And then the hitcher is the opposite. The hitcher is the person who stays in relationships for too long. And so they do things like, well, I've been dating this person for five years, and even though it's not great, I don't want to start over, or I've already invested so much, this idea of the sunk cost fallacy, throwing good money after bad. And so they're so focused on, well, I don't want to give up what I have because I don't know what else is out there, that they don't realize that one of the best ways to get into a great relationship is by getting out of a bad one.
1: You know what? I want to highlight that because this is so perfect. This leads into, I've had this discussion with people, let's say they're, they've are they been in a marriage that's not right or something mm-hmm. for a very long time, but they're saying like, well, mm-hmm. but like we already know I'm already here. Mm-hmm. Our family's already mixed mm-hmm. or, you know, all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And then it's funny because to related to the title of your book, they're always expressing a f- fear of like, well, I don't want to be alone, mm-hmm. but you're like, but you're not alone now. And mm-hmm. that ain't good enough. You're mm-hmm. already not alone. And yet totally, you're not happy. Exactly. It's such a, Oh my gosh. Uh, I agree with you. The best way to get happy is to get out of something that's not working. And, and you see these people and they come, it's once a year, they're bringing it up and then 20 years go by 25 years go by. And, and they will end up kind of alone
2: if they stay with the
1: person that they're feeling alone within the relationship that they're not having. Exactly, own, right?
2: exactly. Just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean that you're not alone. And so in my research on this, I have a whole framework that people can go through to understand, should I stay or should I go? And so some of it is, am I a hitcher or a ditcher? Have I brought my best self to the relationship? Have I brought up the issues with the other person and have we tried to work on them? But a lot of that is very heady, right? It's it's very intellectual. But one question that I came up with that I ask people is what I call the wardrobe test question, which is I say to somebody, if your partner were a piece of clothing in your closet, What piece of clothing would they be? And so this question is, you know, it's kind of random and it's abstract, but because it is like that, people answer in a very gut reaction way. And so I've had a guy who said, my boyfriend is like a wool sweater. He keeps me warm, but then it's itchy. So I want to take him off. Or (laughs) a woman said, my boyfriend is like a scrubby old t-shirt that I would wear to the gym, but I wouldn't want anybody to see me in. Mm. And so this person could try to convince me for an hour that they should stay in the relationship but when they hear how they actually feel about the person it's a good way for them to connect with what's actually going on for them.
1: So good. All right. Well, we will put everything in the show notes to connect with Logan. But um your book How to Not Die Alone available on Amazon and everywhere else and then go ahead and give us our your website and how can we aside from your website can we coach with you one-on-one? How do we benefit more other than, you know, books, interviews of you um, with your expertise on helping us find love?
2: Yeah, so people can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Logan People can go to my website, loganyuri.com, and they can actually take that three dating tendencies quiz. I also have a Facebook group where... People are talking about the book, and there's book clubs, and people are getting together to swipe, and people are uploading their photos and getting feedback. And so there's a really great community emerging around that. And yes, I am doing one on one coaching and 90 minute marathon sessions and some cohort based teaching. And so people can email me, logan at loganyuri.com if they want to connect.
1: Now, one last question. You're, you know, there's so many dating apps out there now, there's a thousand of them. and what would you say? I mean, and I know it's a hodgepodge of people who are looking for serious and who are not. And mm-hmm. and some may say that the Tinders of the World are more hookupy, but yet I've known people that have gotten married off that app. Mm-hmm. So do you have an idea of like, hey, if you're really looking for like serious love, marriage commitment kind of thing, do you have some like a top like we're like, I oh, I go
2: more towards these apps or these sites? Any well, I am I am biased because I work at Hinge, but yep. I Hinge's do a cool f- app. Yeah, I do feel like Hinge really lives up to its slogan, which is designed to be deleted. And so the whole idea there is that Hinge is not trying to be a game. It's not trying to increase the amount of time you spend on the app. It's saying, how can you have a great profile that sparks conversation? There's no swiping. You have to comment on someone's photo or send a like on a particular prompt response. And so it's really about getting into conversations, getting to know somebody, getting off the app and getting into great relationships. And so there really are a bunch of things that Hinge does that try to help kind of cut through the noise and help people connect.
1: Love it. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom, your work. Yeah, I love it. So I fun. loved your book so much. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on and to everyone else, we'll see you next week.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Primal Blueprint listeners, don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards. There's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.